This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. We understand that the journey as a supporter isn't always smooth sailing, but rest assured you're not alone. There's a vast network of fellow fans who share your passion and may be experiencing similar challenges. Honesty is key in any relationship. If your friend asks you how you are feeling, tell them honestly. If you're going through a difficult time, let them know. Opening up about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Welcome to another special episode of the Sky Blues Extra podcast with me, David Moore, Andrew Greasley, and tonight we have a very special guest, Kevin Gallagher. He joined up with the Sky Blues in January 1990. He made over a century of appearances and scored over 30 goals during that time, including a stunning hat-trick away to Nottingham Forest. Let's have a quick listen back to that memorable fixture now. Half has come forward. There he is, number five, Regis also a possible target here. It goes into the near post. In fact, oh, it's off the line. It's in. Gallagher hits the rebound home. And Coventry City are in front. Involved again. Now Regis in space in the middle. Good ball too. And Gallagher's got three again. Oh, what a goal. And Billing coming in there. Oh, and it's Kevin, firstly, thank you for joining us this evening. It's been, it's going to be an absolute pleasure, obviously, talking to you about your Sky Blues time and stories. And I'm sure the thousands of Sky Blues extra listeners out there are really looking forward to hearing your Sky Blues story. As long as they can understand the Scottish accent, it shouldn't be too bad, really. But no, it was fantastic, you know, to my time down at Coventry. Getting me down from Scotland to England was a, a massive learning process for a, such a young lad. And... I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. Uh, I, I loved it. I loved the Midlands and, and I just loved the area where we lived. And, you know, playing at Highfield Road, which is, is no longer, uh, for me, was was something special. Yeah, and like you say, we can hear you loud and clear and I'm sure our listeners at, at home can as well. And talking of Scotland, that's where you started your career. You started at Dundee. How did your sort of career get going? Well, already, Dave, I'm just going to correct you, Dundee United, pal. Uh, big rivals at Dundee. Uh, I started at United. We, we wore the tangerine. Uh, and it basically, it started from the age of 13. 
you get scouted and they weren't allowed to scout you until you were 13 years of age and that's when the professional clubs really uh, got a hold of you and they invited you to trials or to go and speak to managers and for me I went to Glasgow Celtic and I spoke to Billy McNeil who was a manager at the time and Billy McNeil would said to me like yeah the only thing I've got questionable is you're a little bit small we need to get you on the Guinness and for me, thinking that football players were angels um, and never drank any alcohol, that was a no-no. So really, when Dundee United went up, the manager, Jim McLean, just said to me, he said, it doesn't matter about your size, your height, if you're good enough, you'll play for me. And, and that was enough to sell Dundee United to me as a young 13-year-old kid. And I signed schoolboy forums, and fortunately, it wasn't plain sailing because the size I was, I was small. So for me... Uh, to, to get an opportunity at 13 to go and be associated professionally and hopefully it could help me. didn't really mean anything. It just meant that I was tied to Dundee United. We, I think I played maybe half a dozen youth games before I was 16, so it wasn't a lot. But then when I was 16, I got offered an apprenticeship and taken on. And, and, and it really went uh, from strength to strength from there. It, it took me three years uh, of trying to grow and mature and, and, and come into a man's body and it just wasn't happening but uh, I think it was a, a couple of weeks after my 19th birthday the manager must have thought look we need to give him a chance now he's champing at the bit got uh, a couple of injuries and, and I got that opportunity and I took the opportunity and I never looked back I stayed in the first team squad from that day on until I left yeah, it does feel, doesn't it, that football in sort of the, the older years, I, I suppose, it was all about a lot about size at, at the time. It did feel like a lot of players sometimes could have slipped through the net because of that. And apologies around the Dundee United. Um, <laughs> I've not done us a, a sort of fellow Englishman on this podcast any favours this evening. But yeah, it, it's it's very interesting that you say that. And yeah, how did you find football differed from um, Scotland to sort of English football? It was very different. Uh, the way that we prepared ourselves in Scotland was very much through athleticism. We could all run for long periods of time and fast. When you came down to England, it was a lot more physical in the terms of your build. We were, as I always say it, when I was in Scotland, I was built like a, a marathon runner. But when you come down to England, everybody was built like a sprinter. Um, and that was the physique of your body, and, and that was what it was. And, and that was the kind of, not the difference that I found when I came down to England, but it was a change of my life in the way that, that things trained, the way that John Sillett, George Curtis had put training together, the way that they'd done it at Coventry. It was totally different from the way we did it at Dundee United and, and that side of it was, was quite not hard to learn because football is football but I think the biggest thing I had to learn was the language barrier it was very difficult for me to come from Scotland to England there was a big language barrier and I know everybody's going to think to themselves think, how can there be a language barrier we all speak English but people forget yeah. I was really really fast and broad Glaswegian accent and when I came down and I'm having conversation with the guys and they just look and nod and shake their head and you just knew they didn't understand you. So I I really had to, to learn the sort of English dictionary way of, of talking. And then, of course, being in the Midlands, it was slightly, it was a lot slower. So I had to kind of 
get up to speed with uh, the way that they spoke and, and I kind of slowed down and read a lot more books to, to try and get my pronunciation of words and take my slang words away and that was a difficult side of it. Uh, I'll probably say it was probably three or four months it took me to get over it uh, but once I got over that language barrier and I could hold conversations and I knew that people were listening then that was me. I, I settled into it because I loved the area. We moved into a house uh, for the summer uh, and and we got settled in and, and and we loved it. He scored obviously a memorable goal, um, Kevin, against uh, Barcelona in the quarter final. Um, I think it was the cup winners' cup, wasn't it? So that was obviously a memorable moment for you at Dundee United. How did you move to the Sky Blues come about, Kevin? I, to be fair, it was really weird. You know, scoring mm. that goal against Barcelona is is world famous. You know. I was over in Brazil seven years ago and, and even the Brazilians, as soon as you show it against Barcelona, it was like, wow, it was legendary. But, you know, that was it was one of those games done. The United, we played in Europe every season and and that UEFA Cup game was, was phenomenal. The, the draw we got was Barcelona. They had Mark Hughes, Gary Lineker, Terry Venables was the manager. And they're a big club in, in Europe and... Dundee United weren't scared. And it was only a few years earlier they played in the semi-final of the, well, what is the Champions League now? So for us, we had experience in there. So we were very comfortable in our own shoes, shall we say. And for me uh, to play uh, against Barcelona, I was 20 years of age. I wasn't a, a young, young kid, but at 20, I was still young. I was the youngest player in the park that day. But to score that goal was, was just, it was phenomenal for me. Like, I mean, just to score any goal was, was brilliant anyway. But for me, playing as a, a kind of right winger, right-sided forward in my young days, uh, to score against Barcelona, uh, you tell everybody, and they actually sit and listen. You, you can tell them that you scored against Man United, and they go, OK, but when you say it's Barcelona, they, they sit up and listen. And how did you move to uh, the Sky Blues come about, Kevin? Well... It was kind of weird. I, I got married in the summer and uh, I kind of fell out with the manager at the end of the season. But then I got married in the summer and we changed. We got a new sponsor at the football club and went back to pre-season training. And to me, fair, I thought everything was going to be rosy, but the manager, we just weren't seeing eye to eye. And my forum was starting to go kind of drop a little bit. I'd lost heart in the manager and his beliefs in me and I think the manager thought, well, it's time for Kevin to move on and and see it. And I was kind of weaning it by and getting to Christmas and, and got back over it and was ready just to kick on and get my season started when the manager basically said to me, uh, Coventry City have come in, I've accepted an offer, you're going down to speak to them. I just thought, oh, wait a minute, that's came right out of the blue. So I ended up having to phone my wife and say to her, and we... So I said, right, we'll go down, and I went down. So I came down, spoke to John Sullivan, um, John Poynton, and George Curtis. But, um, and basically, they, they sold the club to me. I didn't know what I was doing. It was the first ever, obviously, it's a big, it's a million-pound move. And I was scratching my head, and I spoke to our captain, Paul Hegarty. And I said, Paul, I need help. Uh, the manager's selling me to Coventry. He's accepted money. So it looks like I'm going, but I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. And Paul just said, "Give me an hour, and I'll get back to you." And he phoned me back, and and basically he gave me an A to Z of a transfer move, and that was it. So that A to Z that was reciting in my head until I went down the next morning and, and met up, as I said, with John Sillett, 
the chairman John Poyne and, and, and George Curtis and then we, we battered things out with a conversation basically came to an agreement I got what I wanted to get to come down to England and the next thing I knew was it was a high field road signing a contract uh, with a secretary Graham Hall. And Kevin you've played with and for actually many legends of the game and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about those later but what was it like playing for sort of England legend Terry Butcher and what was his management style like? Well, Terry was new to management. You know, I kind of played against Terry before I came down to England under Coventry. So I kind of knew him. Uh, I knew he was a top-class England defender anyway. And I played against him as a centre-forward. But John Sullett had brought me down to Coventry as a right winger. And Kevin Drinkle, he keeps telling me the story that he, John uh, Sullett had said to him, look, I'm looking for a winger and I'm going to get the boy Kevin Gallagher. And Kevin Drinkle saying, don't get Kevin Gallagher, he's not a winger. So Drinks was, he knew that I was a centre-forward and he knew that I, I could play and score goals up front. But John Sillett wanted me as a winger. And, and I think when Terry came in, unfortunately for John, he, he got the sack and, or he left. And Big Terry got the player-manager's job. And for me, I was like, yes. And I know David Speedy was shouting in my camp to get me up front to help Kevin Drinkle and Big Sorrow and things. And John Sillett was reluctant. So when Terry came down, he knew what I was like. And... Terry just said, look, I'm going to get you up front. I want you up front, wee man. Uh, looking for a bit of pace in behind. And you've done it against me many times and, and were successful. So I want you to be successful down here. And and that was it. So I played up front, uh, scored goals, done really well. And unfortunately, that attracts people to watch him. But big Terry, for me, when he first came, he was on his own. He was new to the game, as the managing side of it. And he was brilliant. Uh, he went round, he would speak to you, he would explain things to you um, and what he wanted. And I think a lot of us understood what he wanted because he, he's still playing, even though he had a knee injury. And Big Tell was, for me, he was brilliant with me. Uh, you know, I had, a, I had a, a fallout in the training pitch with some of the lads because I didn't think they were being professional enough. And I played that night. He, he was man enough to, to pick me and say, you need to show me now because you're letting me down and I went out in the pitch and I played well played the score the goal and after that he knew that I would play for him and he knew that I could play centre forward and I think the rest of the team uh, then they were like wow what a different player Kevin is when he comes off that line and, and he makes the runs up front and he says they can set him up he'll score goals and, and that's what I was and the rest was history You said that John Sillett um, Kevin that signed you as a, as a, as a winger because obviously what you did at Dundee United. Were you happy to come down as a, as a winger? Um, I know you've touched on it a little bit just in your previous conversation, but did you even always see yourself as a, as a main striker in the end? I wanted, to be fair, I mean, John Sullivan never actually said to me, I want you to come down as a right winger. He just said, we want you, I mean, we want you to come down and create goals for, for the front players and things like that. So it was yeah. kind of pointing that way. Because I had to fall out at Dundee United, I just wanted away. Uh, in hindsight, if I'd have sat back and waited, there might have been another club that might have been bigger than Coventry City coming in for me. I didn't know, but it's just the option was that they, the club accepted the money. I wasn't really speaking to my manager at the time. So for me, the best thing to do, I was getting down to England, and for me, getting down to England was it was a more difficult league. It wasn't like you were playing the same team four, six, eight times as, as I just done against Aberdeen and Dundee. 
playing them eight times in a season and it, and it was ridiculous so for me to come down to England it was going to be different and and it was and it, and it certainly opened my eyes because the probably first three months of, of me coming to, to Coventry I played against Stuart players Tony Derigo uh, Pat Van Den Howe Terry Phelan uh, Mark Reid who I played against up in Scotland honestly it was like every game was different it was a different type of fullback and some left back that some left that list there Kevin wow <laughs> it was unbelievable you know yeah. and when you're playing people like Stuart Pearce in one of your first games and you're thinking god I'm, I'm playing against England's left back and England's second left back and if I can get over the hurdles of this I might get people to like me as a player and I mean, to be fair, it went okay. I wouldn't say it went exceptionally well. It went okay, but I think when Stuart Pearce uh, done me right away, I think fans appreciated that I didn't just lie down and go off. I played through the game with an injury, and I knew that if I'm going to succeed in England, I need to to get the better of people like Stuart Pearce, and eventually I did, and and it's touching on what you were talking about earlier with getting that hat-trick. That, to me, summed the way that I took the English league because I had to succeed. I didn't want to go back to Scotland. I had the opportunity every month to go back to Glasgow Celtic, but I wanted to be uh, famous Kevin Gallagher. Uh, If I go back to Glasgow Celtic, I was going to be compared to my grandfather again. I didn't want that. I wanted to be me. Uh, I wanted to be successful in my own right. And I had to jump the hurdles. And fortunately... I jumped the hurdles and uh, I'll never forget it, getting that hat-trick and touching on it. To get that hat-trick was the taming of Stuart Pearce for me. Um, When I first played against, (laughs) little story, when I first played against Nottingham Forest, John Sallett was doing a team talk and Big Sill, he's going around the players and he's telling everybody their tactics and we're all walking out the door and he's going, good luck, good luck, good luck. And he just said to me, take care of yourself, wee man. <laughs> and I wondered why. Yeah. And I went out, and within five minutes, Stuart Pearce had done me. <laughs> I went in at half time, and I thought, now I know why you said, take care of yourself, and you said, good luck to everybody else. It was crazy, but still didn't know the temp- my temperament at that time, and he was still getting to know me as a person. And basically, uh, after that, I said, just tell me. Tell me the players who are hard. Tell me this. I says, give me the added stuff I've known about them and not kind of surmising. And from that day on, uh, as I said, it's sometimes you get thrown in a deep end and learn to swim. I think Sill done that with me against Stuart Pearce. You know, I was just going to come on to the Nottingham Forest hat-trick, and, it, and it's great that you've, you've already mentioned it, and obviously we heard it earlier on. Um, but just a quick one around that. So playing the same sort of teams sort of week in, week out up in Scotland, did you find that it was harder because you were up against so many or did you find that actually you had a bit of air of mystery around your your style of play as well which gave you know defenders like Stuart Pearce and, and others a, a bit of a, a, a sort of head scratcher oh yeah obviously it was a bit of mystery uh, I mean I'd, I'd been an international footballer uh, just new to the international scene and to come down to England uh, people have obviously done do a little bit of homework on you and know what you like, they hear that you're fast and they've got scouts watching games all the time and obviously they heard Stuart Pearce, Brian Clough had obviously heard about that and, and gave Stuart Pearce information and Stuart being Stuart uh, he didn't earn a nickname Psycho for nothing uh, <laughs> yeah, about him I'll never forget it you know at the city ground and Brian Burroughs took a throw in 
I turned my shoulder and I looked and Stuart Pearce was five yards behind me and I controlled it on my chest and as I went to lay it back to Brian Burrows to play the pass, Stuart Pearce just, he done me right in the, the lower yeah. back yeah. and I thought, this is unbelievable. It's just, he's not even getting sent off or nothing. The protection was very little. I got a free kick but that just meant I was handicapped a little bit but then I understood what Stuart Pearce was about and from that day on, it was a big challenge, and not only just Stuart Pearce, it was a challenge for me because if he's the best fullback in England, and I'm going to get at least 50 50 chance in a game with him, then I know the rest of England, not going to be easier, it'll be different, but there's a surprise in there, and I'm going to do quite well. But it was difficult, I must admit, because people knew what you were like and, and they closed you down quickly, you two people on you. but. Up in Scotland, when you're playing a team, as we did, we went in a run in the Cup and you have replays and we would have a draw. You'd have a replay, you have a draw, you have another replay. And if you have a draw, then it goes... And eight times, I played Aberdeen eight times, I played Dundee eight times that season. And I just think, do I want to keep playing them? Because these guys get to know your game and it's very difficult to try and learn something yeah, new and different. So to come to England, for me, was wow, it was a breath of fresh air. Uh, it was a new challenge, but the big thing was nobody knew who I was. And I thought I was famous because I was famous in Scotland. I thought I was yeah. famous. But when I came down to England, nobody knew me. Nobody recovery fans only knew me because I'd signed for them. But nobody knew who I was. Nobody really knew that I played in the UEFA Cup final. Nobody knew I played in Scottish Cup finals. Yeah. Nobody knows anything about my history. And that was the weirdest thing. Nobody knew that I'm from a, a big footballing family. And that yeah. for me was, wow. It's like, I just, I couldn't believe it. And that was my challenge. That was the carrot that I needed to make me successful down in England or, or even at Coventry to start with. And and I jumped on that. I, I took that carrot. I thought, well, that's it. Nobody knows me. I'm going to make sure they know me before I go back to Scotland. And, and, that, and, and Coventry for me, fortunately, were the... A stepping stone to, to that success. And what was it like that, that evening under the lights at Highfield Road? Do you, do you remember much from the game? The three goals, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I'll tell you what, it was unbelievable. Uh, drawing Nottingham Forest in the cup where they've been unbeaten for two years, we just thought, this is a nightmare. Because Forest were a bit of a bogey side for us. We knew what we had to do. We knew we were a good side and not, not going to lie down. But we went out and just thought, right, let's give it our best. And Highfield Road, when the energy's there and the lights are on, you know, the fans are behind you, it, it was it was brilliant. But the way we started the game was just was even better. And and to go, was it 3-0 up, I think we were? And you think, wow, this is just unbelievable. You got a hat trick in, in the first half, and you're thinking, we're going to batter this lot. Yeah. And it all went pear shaped. And I think the horrible thing was when it got back to 3 3, it was, what have we done? Because we put the game out of reach for Forrest. They should never have been back in it. We know Brian Clough will get them going. We know they're a good side. But 3 0, there's no way a team can get back at you 3 0. But when Forrest did that, and then uh, I think it was Liverpool got the fourth goal, didn't he? And I think from that that moment getting that fourth goal, it was like, that's it, we need to tighten up. And the game changed, and we kind of held on a little bit. I got a hat-trick, Nigel Clough got a hat-trick. 
do unfortunately for Nigel, I got to the referee first and got the ball <laughs> and, and, and took the ball and got the ball. But uh, it was phenomenal, you know. And for me, as I said earlier, that was the taming of Stuart Pearce. You know, one of the runs I make from wing in behind Stuart Pearce and Chip uh, Mark Crosley, uh, that goal to me it was a epitome of what I could do to defenders. Uh, clever movement and then yeah. a good finish and that was it but to get the hat-trick and to see the end of Nottingham Forest cup run was just phenomenal for us and I mean I think going in after that game into the players lounge under and the, when you went out uh, it was unbelievable I think uh, I think we actually drunk the, the players lounge dry that night <laughs> with the ball under your arm I had the ball under my arm yeah I definitely that was well tucked in and I even apologise to Nigel Clough at the end of it. I says, look, sorry, but you might get a ball. Maybe we'll get one off for you, but I says, I've got the match ball. I says, and he says, you deserve it. He says, three goals in the first half, pal. And that was it. So, you know, even even every time I see Nigel now, when I'm working at games and I see him, uh, I always bring it up and have a little mention of it and just rub salt in the wound a little bit. And he takes it with good spirit. And why not? Apart from the uh, game against Forest, do you have another favourite game at Highfield Road, Kevin? And what was why was the uh, Highfield Road so special for you? I think the fans being tight to the ground. I think that for me, you know, and uh, oh God, I forgot the name. It is it Cop End for the Cop Yeah, the West Terrace aspect. That's that. Yeah, the fencing was up at that time as well, and it kind of gave you the, the hostility and. You know, I think teams came there to Highfield Road. Uh, and I, even though I mean, you, I'm talking about Liverpool's and they came in the Barters one year as well, but teams like that came and, and they were like, wow, oh my God, we're, we're in for a game at Highfield Road. And, and it was. And I think when the lads win the, the FA Cup in 87, the, I think teams started looking at Coventry thinking they've got a good bunch of lads here. They're very strong. Yeah. They work for each other. Uh and we need to watch out for them. And, and Highfield Road was a fortress, you know, and we, we we didn't really fear anybody at Highfield Road. Going away from it was a little bit different, but at Highfield Road, we fancied our chances against the best. We got battered off one or two of the best, but at the end of the day, I think in my time there, we, we took a lot more victories probably at Highfield Road off bigger sides than, than we did losing them. And we recently spoke to Terry Gibson and he, he played under Bobby Gold twice. What was playing under Bobby Gold like for yourself? <laughs> I didn't play long enough for him. <laughs> but Gouldy was brilliant. I mean, Gouldy came out and he's a manager. I got to know Jonathan, his lad, who ended up goalkeeper yeah. there. Yeah. And I got friendly with Jonathan and uh, we had a good Christmas period. And Jonathan, his wife, me and my wife, David Smith, uh, the, the winger, and his wife, and we were all out for the Christmas period and we had a good laugh, a good drink up and things like that. And uh, I didn't know by the time I got a hamstring injury not long after it, and I came back for the hamstring injury and Gildy just pulled me, basically just said to me, he says, Kevin, look, uh, we've no money to buy players and you're the only guy in this football club that's going to pull me in <laughs> a couple and a half plus million. Yeah. He says, we've got a two and a half million price tag on you. Have you got an agent? And I says, yeah, I've got an agent. He says, uh, you don't need one. I can be your agent. Where do you want to go? What club do you want to go to? I've got nine <laughs> clubs interested. 
And I went, nine? I says, have you been touting me out or something like that? And, <laughs> and he was having a laugh. And he went, no, I'm not being touting you out, but I've got nine clubs. And at that stage, I'd been tapped up from an outsider for Man City. And I thought, well, I don't, I can't mention it. I can't say nothing. So I kind of just went, oh, kind of northwest again. And it only left Man City or Celtic were the two teams <laughs> kind of up north. And I was <laughs> like, oh, I kind of not thought that one through, really. So he kind of went, oh, you want to go back to Scotland? I went, no, I don't want to go back to Scotland. I says, but, but, uh, and he says, well, look, we've got nine clubs interested. Uh, right, let's go have a think about it. And at that time, we never had mobile phones. It was just all done by the house phone or the phone at uh, the training ground. And I remember him, he called me in and he went, you need to be in the house for three o'clock today. <laughs> I was like, why? He went, Kenny Douglas is phoning you. So I was like, wow, Kenny's phoning me. And then I thought, well, why is he phoning me? So <laughs> I went home after training and I thought, I phoned my wife up who's working. I says, look, Kenny Douglas is phoning me. And I thought, right, he's the manager of Blackburn Rovers. And she went, all right, uh, what's going to happen? I said, I don't know. She says, Bobby Gould said to talk to him. So we'll see, we'll see what's going to happen. So Kenny phoned, bang on three o'clock. Uh, the house phone rang and I, and I spoke to Kenny and he said, can you get up to Southport, meet me at this restaurant uh, and I went, well, uh, I'm going to send my agent up I says, and, and we can come up. I says, but I've got dogs, I need to get dogs sat. I says, and my missus is working uh, till six o'clock or something like that. I says, and by the time we get up, it's going to take me three hours to get up there. Uh, and he went, right, he says, you're booked into the Scarisbrick Hotel he says, in Southport, he says, get yourself there, come to this restaurant, be there for about 11pm. So I was like, okay, uh, we'll try it, and done it. So we ended up getting, my wife finished work, we went and spoke to someone who looked, uh, who had dogs that we knew at the dog club, who we went training, and they, actually, they took the dog's office, and two of us drove all the way to Southport, and we still realistically well, before we, we jumped in a car to go, we had to get the road atlas out because there was no sat-navs. So I got the road atlas out, and first and foremost, I looked where Blackburn was. Yeah. And I hadn't a clue where it was. I thought, where is Blackburn anyway? But it must be near Liverpool somewhere. So I went, and I thought, this is kind of strange, but Blackburn is actually north of Manchester, and we found it. So we drove to, to Southport, met Kenny, 11 o'clock, sat and had a meal, a dinner-type stroke supper. And by that stage, we had a chat with my agent, chat with Kenny, Ray Harford. My wife was talking to Marina. And basically, they, they sold a dream. They never sold me a football club. They sold a dream that yeah. Kenny and Jack were putting together. Uh, and I bought into it. I, I just think it was just because Kenny, really, that's what I bought into was Kenny, my idol. And I thought, wow, to go and play for this guy would be brilliant. And then I, I agreed and went back to the hotel room and thought, where is Blackburn again? <laughs> they just got promoted. They're just a promoted team. Yeah. I'm actually I'm actually dropping down a level. <laughs> Have I done the right thing? And we sat and spoke about it. And next morning, Kenny met us and we followed him in behind an hour car. And I went into to Blackburn looked at the state of Blackburn, the, the, the football ground, and I just thought, what have I done? And 
we ended up, we went and he went over it again. We spoke about it, signed the contract, and met Jack Walker, and just thought, wow, what a place. And then I met Jack's son, Howard, and Howard said, look, oh, I'm going to come and pick you up and go and bring you for the hotel. I'll we'll meet by Colin Henry, and then we're going to take you to show you the training facilities where they're going to be. And I could, being a bit of a visualiser, I looked at this place at where Blackburn training ground was going to be, and I just thought, wow, being so used to to training at, at Wrighton with, with, with Coventry, being spoilt that way, at Blackburn, I was actually having to uh, wash my own kit with, with no training facilities. It was a wow. massive, wow. massive step backwards for me uh, in that term. But to go to a football club in a dream was a big, massive gamble. But it was just for looking at it. And I think the big thing was they just spent 3.3 million six months earlier on a guy called Alan Shearer. And I thought, wow, I'm going for two and a half million here. And then Coventry were going to be buying Roy Wegerly. So for me, I thought the pressure was on me because 3.3 million, two and a half million people are going to look at a lot of pressure and the pressure yeah. is hard. But the fortunate thing was we bought Roy Wegerly for a million and uh, <laughs> my price went down to everybody says or thinks it's one and a half million. So I'm like, yes. So the pressure was off me. So I just like, yeah, it's only one and a half million. No problem. Don't even mention Roy Wegerly. I just take it as that. And it made it slightly easier to, to settle in at Blackburn. And... Uh, my first game well, could have been should have been against Queen's Park Rangers. Uh, Graham Lasso and I both signed the same time, uh, but unfortunately, uh, my medical was a bit delayed. So my or both my medicals were slightly delayed, and we never got signed in time to play that night. So we travelled to the game, and it was the weekend we were both making our debut against Liverpool. And you know, I mean, my memories of Liverpool was at Highfield Road when we just beat them 5-1. Yeah. yeah. And then um, my first game for Blackburn was Liverpool. And I think they were sick of the sight of me. Uh, <laughs> it was 4-1. Uh, so I thought, well, what a better way to, to get a debut, score in your debut, uh, set up a couple in your debut. And right away, the Blackburn fans uh, were in awe of me. They were like, wow, what a guy we've got. We've just yeah. brought to get and sign and, and score goals. And, I thought fantastic, and it was a great way for me to settle in pretty quickly. Talking of that five-one uh, victory over Liverpool at Highfield Road, uh, obviously Mickey Quinn scored a couple of goals on that day. Uh, what was it like playing with Mickey Quinn? Um, I know you played with him briefly on in the third season, wasn't it? You were there, Kevin. But what was he like as a striker? The fastest man over a yard, Quinny. <laughs> Sumo. Yeah, he just breathed out. That was it, and his belly went over the line. No, Quinny was brilliant. Yeah, and I mean, when, when Quinny came, we, we needed that. I could score goals. There was no doubt about that. But I wasn't 25, 30 goal a season, man, that we needed at Coventry. But when we got Quinny, Quinny was, but you had to do a lot of work around about him. But we had pace, power to work for that. We had, I would probably say, we probably one of the fastest teams in Division One or the Premier League at the time at Coventry. You know, we Phil Bab, Peter and Love, John Williams, myself, um, all lightning quick. With Peter yeah. uh, Atherton, who was no slouch at the time. You know, we we had very very quick players 
in and around that team. Uh, very clever technical ability players as well. And to get Quinny was brilliant, but someone was going to lose out in the position. And unfortunately, it was getting it was me. My nose was getting pushed out. And when that happens, knowing me as a person, I wasn't really accepting it because I'd been top goal scorer for the last three seasons. Yeah. And then Quinny comes in, and I think, well, me and Quinny up front, that's going to be good. And it didn't happen that way. Uh, I kind of got my nose pushed out of joint and pushed back to the wing. And I kind of lost heart in it. I didn't want to play there, uh, to be fair. I loved the guys. Um, it was a great set of lads, great uh, camaraderie. It was, I mean, it's, I can only speak highly of the guys, you know. I mean, you had your Dean Emmertons, you had your Mickey Jins, Trevor Peaks, Brian Kleins, Big Augie, legends of the football club, you know, Brian Burrows. You know, we had these guys and they just made me feel so welcome a lot of the 87 squad and then the new guys that came in were starting to change we were starting to get people like Peter Arthur and coming from a lower league team in Wigan we Ray Woods coming from Wigan uh, then we started getting big boosty from Forest Green and, and the non-league sides big Andy Pierce, and things were changing there was no money around the football club and you could see that and we were relying on wheeling and dealing and getting I mean, getting Mickey Quinn was great for us. It was going to add that firepower and we were all going to help supply it. And then, it, for me, it just didn't work out that way. I was getting my nose pushed out the side, basically because it looked like the club wanted me out at the time or the manager wanted me out. And, and Gouldy was right. He was open and honest and right away. And he said, pick a club, you're going. <laughs> and that's yeah. what happened. And that's, at the end of the day, you know, I seen a 1987 squad of players and the camaraderie that they had was magnificent, and I've seen eye-openers in that, to a different set of guys that were still together, but things were changing. I never even mentioned little Sean Flynn, another guy that came from non-league and, yeah. and ended up in a good league career. And we just that's just the way that, that things were happening. And for me, that wasn't the way that i seen me playing at, at Coventry. And I think when, when Kenny came along for Blackburn, it kind of made it that slightly bit easier. I think it'd been difficult had it been another football club with a manager I didn't really kind of idolise. Uh, I think it'd been difficult because Kenny sold me a dream. I just jumped at that dream and the the rest, as I keep saying, it was the rest is history because following the dream of spending a lot of money for one of the I mean, unknown people in the Premier League at the time who ends up now the all-time leading goal scorer. To be part of that, that squad, to play alongside him for eight, six years, eight years of my career, was just phenomenal because for me, he's been England's best striker in the, in the Premier League period at the time. You're listening to Sky Blues Extra. What do you remember of uh, Cyril Regis and David Speedy? Were they big characters in the dressing room, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, we had a load of characters in that dressing room. It was brilliant. Speedo, obviously being a fellow Scotsman and and birthrights, but not an accent. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and fought my corner, a fellow Scotsman, as you say. Uh, he fought my corner with John Sillock to try and get me up front. Uh, he's a great character, but when Speedo switched off, you didn't want him in your team. And, and it happened. And I was new to the club and I came in in January and I think 
running up to the end of the season we played Sheffield Wednesday and we just got relegated and they came to Highfield Road and they battered us 4-1 mm. and Speedo just did not want to know and it was hard it was, it was kind of weird to play in a game like that that you've just been beaten by a team that's been relegated because I just wasn't used to it and I just found it strange but I got down the tunnel I was raging and I got in the dressing room and then I just hear this noise and big stramash behind me I'm like what are, what's going on back there there's something happening <laughs> and I come in, in the dressing room there's the door gets bashed open into the dressing room and you got PK having a go at Speedo and Speedo having a go at PK and you're thinking this is just mental and then you've got big Augie in the middle of killer <laughs> alongside him you're thinking that's something kicked off you and like you go in the dressing room you got number six just at George Dalton's physio door. You get number six is Trevor Peak. Past the door, you had number seven, which was me, and number eight, which was David Speedy. So this Ramash got split up. So Speedo sat down next to me. His face is red. <laughs> but Trevor Peak who's sitting to the right of me. He's raging and still having a go at Speedo for not trying in the game. And I'm sat there thinking, what the hell have I joined for a football club? This is just unbelievable. Yeah. And to be fair, it just showed the, the kind of what it meant to the football club. But Trevor then just had another go at Speedo, and of course Speedo's then over the top of me, having trying to have a fight. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, oh, this is just mad. So I'm there, and then big killers trying to split them up, getting them away, and then splitting them up. And George Curtis has walked in. John Sullitz just came in and just went, right, see you lot Monday morning. Walked out, left everybody. Just the two, him and George Curtis left, and Monday morning, it was weird because we forget about it. The game had gone. You forget about that because you're ready for the next game. But Monday morning, yeah. Sill always done his rundown. And then Monday, we went in and Sill wasn't in. It was George Curtis. And when George was doing it on his own, that meant a problem. And we thought, oh, God. And we went in. And none of the guys were strapped to train. And I was like, what's happening? So says, George Curtis is up. He's got PK up there with Speedo. He's having it out with him. I thought, oh, God, this has been nobody's getting stripped. We're not training. I was like, oh, God, we're getting punished anyway. I don't know. Just They're having a meeting, then we'll find out. So we're sat there. We sat for about an hour. And then it was, right, guys, uh, you need to come upstairs. And they walked upstairs and chapped in the manager's door and walked in. George Curtis is sat behind the table. Peaky's at one side of the table. Speedo's at the other side of the table with a glass of champagne each. And there's a bottle of champagne on the table uh, on a desk and walked in and we all squeezed in. Everybody that played, the subs, we all squeezed into the office and George Curtis went, right, guys, right, this is a That game on Saturday was a disgrace. Everybody let the club down. These two let themselves down, but they also let the club down big style with the, their animations. We've sorted it. We've got it over and done with. Nobody leaves here till those 12 bottles of champagne are finished and nobody drives the old book a taxi club. Oh, wow. And I, I, I thought, I can't, no, 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 this isn't right. What? So we did, we sat there, we were drinking champagne, we drank all the champagne dry, went, jumped out, got a taxi. I got the taxi home. I got home and then I phoned the wife in the house, slurring my words. And she went, what are you drinking? And I went, no, 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 no. And I explained to her the circumstance. And I went, this is unbelievable. I love this club. I said, 
this is it, the fines are flying. I said, the fine was we had to drink 12 bottles of champagne. <laughs> I, thought, I can't believe this, it was unbelievable. That, that, and that just thought, but the camaraderie of the guys was brilliant. And what was uh, Big C like, uh, Kevin? Oh, Sorrow was brilliant. Sorrow was, for me, he was fantastic. You know, I think one of my first night out, Sorrow looked after me. I think we went out into Birmingham mm. and all the guys went out and one of the first people, Big Sorrow, put an arm, come on, you come with me. Uh, so it was me, Cyril Regis, Lloyd McGrath, and I think Cyril's brother was there. Uh, uh, somebody else there. And I, I've jumped in with them, and we've met the lads in Birmingham, and, and we're having a night out. And Big Cyril, he, he, he did, he was like a father figure, and put his arm around me. And he was a legend anyway in football, but to get to know him and what he was like was phenomenal. And there was one time it was when I just signed and I was I didn't really know anybody and I was getting to know people. We were over in Spain and we went golfing. And if you didn't play golf, you went drinking. But <laughs> so that was your choice. So I decided I'm going to go golfing because I can't handle drinking all day with these guys. They look like they're big drinkers. And so Big Cyril said, Look, you fancy going for something to eat? So we went away and he took me to a restaurant and we sat and we're having a chat. He was telling me about Coventry City. And I mean, he actually, for me, my, my biggest thing was I, I hated olives. I hated them. I went to <laughs> pizza. Even if I could get the slightest little one that was chopped up, I could pick out the pizza. But Cyril, uh, in this restaurant, got pickled olives and got me eating pickled olives. And to that day, I eat olives now. They don't bother me. <laughs> I just think that's, that's my biggest memory of, of doing something with Cyril. But for me, on the pitch, he was awesome. Wow, if I could turn back the clock to when he could sprint, what a what a dynamic forward line we would have had, you know, in love, Gallica, Regis, you know what I mean? It would have been probably yeah. the quickest. It's a it's a it's a hundred meter sprint, frightening. frightening pace, phenomenal. But the thing that Cyril did for me that helped me in my introduction to being a centre forward at Coventry was he held off the centre halves. And allowed the spaces for me to get into to score the goals. Yeah, that's what he was good at. His strength, he was unbelievable. He used to leave the training ground and go to the gym. You know, he was solid. He was yeah. built. But I just wish that I could have played with Cyril ten years younger. You know, to get him in his thirties and he was super, he was fit, but he just could not sprint anywhere. Yeah. But I thought, well, if he's no sprinting and he's doing my hold up play, I'll do his running. Yeah, and it worked well for both of us, and yeah. you know it was just it was fantastic that way. And as I said, I mean, part of the '87 squad they accepted me that way, and I always felt like I was part of the '87 squad. But I kept I said to them, I said, "Look, I hate when you mention '87 because you guys won the FA yeah. in '87 as underdogs. I got beat in the FA Cup in '87 as the favourites in Scotland." Yeah. So it's it's a it's a gut wrench of my feeling in my tummy. You guys all feel elation. I hate it because I got beat in the cup final. Uh, but at the end of the day, just knowing the guys and what they've done for me and what they were like as people uh, was brilliant. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Picture the scene. All of your mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.
The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. We understand that the journey as a supporter isn't always smooth sailing, but rest assured you're not alone. There's a vast network of fellow fans who share your passion and may be experiencing similar challenges. Honesty is key in any relationship. If your friend asks you how you are feeling, tell them honestly. If you're going through a difficult time, let them know. Opening up about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. And do you put, you know, you mentioned there about um, Cyril and, you, you know, you obviously had a phenomenal couple of seasons, um, top goal scorer, two seasons running. What what do you put that down to? Um, it, you know, how, how come you perform to that sort of level? That was me. <laughs> that was just me. Uh, that was just seeing me probably on a run of games and, and playing Confidence. with people and understanding in the team. I knew the way the system we played, that we had wide pair layers that were going to get the ball in the box, uh, just get the ball in, I'll try and get on the end of it. Uh, and that's what it was. I'll make runs through teams. Teams played high against us. We had time in the runs and, and I would get through and score goals for us. And, you know, it was just the people, you know, playing up front with Big Surrell, it was fantastic playing up front with Kevin Drinkle, Lee Speedo. Didn't matter who played up front. I mean, I could read players. That was, I think, a big forte of mine. I like to be able to read how players played and try and make runs off them and be around about them and things like that. And that's what I've done, you know. And, and, and that's what got the best out of me, not just at Coventry. Every club I played at, when I'd done that, uh, I probably was an enigma because when I was 13 to 16, I was actually centre midfield. As a kid, a goal scoring centre midfielder. Um, but Dundee United at 16, as I said, they went, no way, you're a centre midfielder, you're too small, but you're light and quick, you can become a winger. I wasn't a winger. What I classed myself was, I was an old inside forward. So yeah. I had quite an intelligence around the game, and I think that's what helped me through my career. What I lacked in height, I certainly wasn't going to lack in work rate, and that's what I wanted to do and the way I could get about it. Peter Unlove um, was one of the first African players to uh, come to England. I think he was the first, Kevin. What was he like as a, as a player on and off the pitch? Oh, he's, he was a quiet lad when we got him. Mm, well, yeah, Peter, we, we fell on top of Peter, to be fair. Uh, the club took us to Zimbabwe, to South Africa, on uh, the end of season trip. And basically said, John Sullivan said to us, look, we're not taking the games too serious. But we're having a we're having a look at this guy called Adam and Love, uh, and we're having a look at this guy, and we're trying to see if we can get him over to England. So we were there. It was a it was a it was a, it was a holiday really, and we went over to to there, and we're playing in this game, and there was this young kid who was phenomenal, and it wasn't a guy called Adam and Love. It was a young, I think he was 17 at the time, a 17-year-old kid called Peter in Love. <laughs> and it was like, okay. So so then came and we've got this kid coming over, this guy called Peter in Love. And I thought, I thought you were going for Adam. He went, yeah, but this, kid, this kid's got something else. And he did, you know, well, you, you know we knew Day. He was a phenomenal little player. Great two-footed player, fast, trickery. But like all South Africans, couldn't hit the back of the net. And once he worked on his consistency, he was going to get better. And yeah. you could see what this kid had. 
And he did, you know, I think Coventry fans seen a lot of how good he was. I think Sheffield United fans seen a lot of what Nudie was like. Fantastic talent, but I'll tell you what, what a spot it was from the, the Coventry hierarchy of, of pulling the kid out from that game or the games that we played. But, I mean, he was a great success he was. And Adam never got the opportunity to come to England, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I did. It's uh, quite an expensive way, isn't it, to try and get a player by taking the whole squad to another country. But um, interesting enough, at least we got to see how he played before um, before he joined, and what yeah, what a sign it turned out to be. Yeah, but I, I, knowing Big Sal, uh, the club wouldn't have paid that much money to go out. <laughs> he would have probably got an invite out, so that's why all the players were going out. The Premiership when that launched. Did that feel like a, a massive change in English football? What were your feelings towards that new sort of league setup? It was very, very different. There was something happening, but you couldn't quite grasp what it was. Yeah. Uh, you'd, a, you'd a feeling things were getting Americanized. Okay. Uh, it was all becoming TV orientated. It was like weird. It was really, really weird at the time. Uh, you didn't really notice it much as a player, but you knew through the fixtures, through the, the football strips. Now you had to wear it. You, now you was you were becoming into a squad. I mean, I when I left, I mean, at Blackburn, the next that season, the Premier League had started. You were you're actually squad numbers, names were on shirts, and it was getting very Americanized. Yeah. And it was it was it was it was weird and different. There's a bit of money came into the game. Yeah, but it wasn't a lot like it is in today's game. But something was changing, and then it was noticeable when the TV games came out. But there was more TV games starting to come out. There was different days. It was it was Saturday, Sunday, and Mondays. Yeah, and you're thinking, oh my God, it's, it's changing now. You got Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Wednesday. Yeah, got- when's my day off? And you're just thinking, days off are going to be nil and void now. And yeah. how are we going to do it all? But no, eventually. I mean, you got used to it and you got the package and it was. You had these uh, dancing girls and then you had fireworks. It was all Americanized. It was all done basically for television. Yeah. So it was changing in that manner in the early 90s. And I think that enabled clubs like Blackburn Rovers to take gambles mm-hmm. on people like Alan Shearer yeah, myself and that, and go and spend money. And I know they had an owner there that had a lot of money, but with Jack Walker. But I think by the tele- television monies that were starting to come into football clubs, they were taking a little bit more of a gamble and spending more on players, bigger mm. wages and things started to to develop uh, for one or two players, and uh, it was noticeable, but not as fast and noticeable as it is now. You're listening to Sky Blues Extra. At Blackburn, you played with Alan Shearer. Um, what was he like as a player, a leader, and more? Oh, brilliant. That was brilliant. You know, when I first watched Alan at Blackburn, I was a Coventry player. Mm. Uh, he ran the channels. He could score goals. could hold the ball up. Everything he was touching, there was something magical about him at that time. And then to go and you see a player has calibre get an injury and then you're a player that's getting brought in to replace him for a, a period of time it's a lot of pressure yeah you get to know the guy he's a bit of people think he's sour faced and 
Alan had an image above him, like Kenny Dalglish, and Alan had one liners. He would wind you up like anything else. He was first in a karaoke machine. You know, he's when you know Alan Shearer is a different person that puts himself in front of a camera. Yeah, because when he comes across like on Match of the Day, people think he's all serious and that, don't yeah. they, Kevin? But he's a bit of a joker, isn't he? He is. He yeah. is. And he's one of those guys as well. He'll go on and, as we say, he'll go on and start something and then run away <laughs> and leave somebody else with a mess to clean up. And <laughs> one, one of those guys, I mean, getting to know him. And he's one of those guys we were happy. He, we, the club at Blackburn at the time, we're putting everything into Alan. So we, when when I joined and things, you were quite happy to leave it to Alan. Mm. You, you weren't clambering for television appearances or anything like that. You're quite happy to let Kenny and Alan do it, and they yeah. took all the pressures. So we just went out and enjoyed the game, and 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 let them take the pressures, and you know, and the dressing room, and then with a lot of different people that could be different types of leaders. Uh, in that dressing room and, and mm. people talk about it at Blackburn and with Colin Hendry's Alan Shearer's Tim Sherwood's even David Batty when he came to the club Tim Flowers yeah guys all that, leaders with all leaders and mm. everybody went in and everybody to say and we pointed the finger at each other but that's what made us that success at Blackburn you know finishing fourth in the first season from being promoted then finishing second, and then winning the league. Should people say we bought it? We didn't. We worked hard. We grafted. We had players that worked with each other there. We had people that told, now you're taking the mickey, now you need to get your finger out. We had guys that had done that. And Shearer was one of those guys. And and you respected each other for it because at the end of the day, we got the results on the pitch. And that's why we respected each other. But I wouldn't say that everybody was best friends mm. but certainly we'd work for each other on the yeah. pitch but when we left the pitch and we went home I wouldn't say a lot of us went out and had a drink with each other mm. but we certainly on the pitch that's when we left it we worked for each other on that pitch where it mattered You won 53 caps for Scotland hopefully my knowledge is right there and I've probably already offended you over the, the Dundee so I'm not <laughs> going to talk too much about Euro 96 but what was it like to, to play for your country and especially in those sort of Euro tournaments? Oh, it was brilliant. You know, my biggest disappointment was, <laughs> and it sounds weird here, Italy 90. Andy Roxburgh was the manager of Scotland at the time. And yeah, I was, I was a young player, uh, yeah. 40 years old, and I was in and out the sort of the team. And, and, and Andy Roxburgh said, look, you're going to have to be playing regularly to have a chance of playing at World Cup in Italy in 1990. So when the opportunity came for me to sign for Coventry yeah. in January, I knew I was going to be playing week in, week out at Coventry. Andy Roxburgh is not going to excuse. And yeah. that's what happened. So when I signed for Coventry, I was playing week in, week out. But when it came to 1990, Andy Roxburgh did not select me in that World Cup squad. And I was raging, absolutely raging. Yeah. Uh, but I got a holiday to Zimbabwe out of it. <laughs> got to know the players that little bit better as well. Uh, so for me, I don't even know who Scotland played in the 90 World Cup, Metley. I don't care. Didn't yeah. care. Uh, 
which is kind of strange, but I was raging because I felt that I'd done enough to get myself to that World Cup and that World Cup squad. I didn't get there, um, and I put it behind me. Uh, we went away to Zimbabwe, then I went away to America on holiday. And when I came back, it was pre-season. And it was back in, I forgot about the World Cup, wasn't worried about it, and just preparing for the next one. And within the next two years, for me, was to get uh, Euro 92, uh, yeah. Sweden and I did uh, and we had a lot of good players at the time the Brian McClare's, Morris Johnson's and the uh, Ali McCoy, Scott and Strachan's and I fortunately, unfortunately I was kind of backing them all up I got to Euro 92 sure. in Sweden and I thought wow this is to get to a major competition this could have been my second but we've done it, we've got to the second major competition I want to get to a World Cup and then of course uh, World Cup 94 uh, the broken leg didn't get there and then thinking wow that's just, I might never get an opportunity again it looks like Scotland are, are dwindling by the wayside but we, Euro 96 uh, was probably a competition too early for me but it was brilliant because it was in England and we were living in the Midlands where I lived just outside Stratford-upon-Avon, and we were training there. So for me, it was brilliant because I had all my old neighbours coming to watch training every day. I was speaking to my neighbours. I was having a chat with them. It was absolutely yeah. brilliant. I thought, fantastic. But I was not ready for Euro 96. I was probably 90% fit Fine. returning from a broken leg. Yeah. Uh, so for me, it was always going to be a hard one. Uh, and then Craig Brown picked me for the opening game against Holland and I thought wow I'm playing in the Euro 96 this is phenomenal but uh, I played in that didn't play in the next two Yeah, uh, unfortunately uh, which I was disappointed about uh, again and I thought right I've just got to give it a blast with Scotland I've got to do well so we got through Euro 96 we got knocked out and I thought right so 96, I was just starting to find my feet in Blackburn. Alan Shearer left and went to Newcastle. And there was a big responsibility now became from the SES, became GES. So <laughs> well, the SES shooting them down. Now we were gassing them out. <laughs> so it was me and Chris Sutton going to lead the line. Remember it well. And so 96, 97, or 97, 98 season, I was on fire. It was unbelievable. Me and Sutty were, we got 40 odd goals between us, 49 goals between us or something like that. Ridiculous. And as well, I got six goals for Scotland on the road, got Scotland to the World Cup. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I can't believe it. One of the highest scorers in Europe and got Scotland to the World Cup was, was for me, I was like, we've done it. We're, I'm going to be at the World Cup. Um, 98, I'm going to be 32 years old. I'm thinking, it's, this is it. It's my last chance, really, of getting yeah. to wake up. And, uh, and no other way of, you're actually flying high. And for me, the unfortunate thing was that Christmas, I ended up needing a double hernia. And I didn't want to go and get it. So I kept playing and not training. So I never trained between December and the World Cup. I never trained. I just played in matches. Yeah. Uh, for me, I was scoring goals for fun. I was playing well. 
unfortunately, Craig Brown would have none of it. Craig Brown said, you have to train. If I don't train, he's not going to play me. I said, but I've not trained all season. I was from Christmas. I've not trained. I've played in games. I'm scoring goals. I'm doing really well. Yeah. This is Kevin. We've got the media watching us. We've got this. It's a World Cup and all that. I said, Craig, if you're going to train me, you might not get the best of me. And unfortunately, not a lot of people knew that I actually went through the World Cup with a double hernia. Wow. So went through that World Cup. As soon as it finished, I had four days holiday in Saint-Tropez. And I got, I got a flight back to England, straight to the hospital, and got my, my hernias done. So all these major competitions, I've not really got majorly brilliant memories, but the 98 World Cup, to get there and play in a World Cup was the pinnacle of my career because as a kid in my mum and dad's back garden, I had a dream yeah. Scotland, Scotland to play Brazil mm. in a World Cup final. Uh, that was my dream. That was my ultimate in the back garden. And when we drew Brazil in the opening of the World Cup, that was my World Cup final. That was my dream as a child. Yeah, it became reality. Okay, it wasn't a World Cup final. No. But, but it was, for me, the second or the most watched game at a World Cup. Yeah. Other than the final. So to have many, many billions of people watching you play against Brazil and take a dive, for me, it was brilliant. And we <laughs> got beat, but that was Scotland. We always went the hard way. But to do it, that was my childhood dream came true, and I found it hard to believe. You're listening to Sky Blues Extra. Just to go back to sort of the Sky Blues, Kevin, um, if you had to pick a sort of best five-a-side team from your your time there a goalkeeper a defender a midfielder and, and a fellow striker as, as you did play up, up top for us who who would they be god well Very big tough. Augie obviously big Augie's going to be my goalkeeper he was phenomenal uh, and he can always break up fights can't he then if anything kicks off uh, in the changing room yeah he'd look after you anyway excellent <laughs> was that alright Augie's a big policeman as well was he not yeah at yeah. some stage, yeah, so no, he could handle himself. Um, you'd probably go at the back, who'd just wipe out everybody, big killer. Uh, you've got wee Nuddy because you just throw, just pass him the ball, just let him take everybody on all day. <laughs> they got 20 for scoring goals, and then I'll just join in. That is, to be fair, we read good players, different eras of players to play yeah. five sides, you know. You know like Trevor Peak, like playing five or sides at the back. He was calm. He just passed it and knocked it about and defended. You're big coloured and the same. So generally, when you're just subs, they interchanged. You know, Greg Downs when I first went, not yeah. even Brad Burrows. Bugsy loved five or sides playing in these games. Mm. Uh, he done them, played in the Masters as well. Uh, yeah. Jen, uh, we Jenny played in them. Uh, yeah, Jenny played in a lot of Masters, didn't he? Yeah. Jenny, I mean, keep five or side players. It's this guy's little. I mean, it's, it's a different type of football as well, you know. I mean, five or side, I love five or sides, don't get me wrong, but it's scoring goals, different, different parts. I like to run about with five or sides. I couldn't stand up like Mickey Quinn and just stand and poach. And that's why <laughs> Quinn and the, the Masters, because he just stood and poached and then just nick all the goals. So, <laughs> oh, it, there's so many players to pick from. Yeah. 
throughout mine, I mean, three, three four seasons at Coventry, uh, different players, different personnel. Phil Bab, you know, he came into the team as well. I remember when Babsy came into the team for Bradford, everyone was like, oh my God, he's a donkey. <laughs> Where Babsy turned out to be, you know what I mean? Yeah. Irish international What a footballer. He yeah. came as a left winger. And I thought, oh my God, this is unreal. Uh, ends up a, a sweeper, centre-half. But that's just the way that certain managers look at certain players. And Babsy went on had a great career, you know. Peter Atherton, another one that liked playing five or six. When you're going through it, just picking up older names, Flinny, Sean yeah. Flynn, you know. So many. You get it. There's, there's loads of guys that, that I played with Coventry that, that loved the five-a-side game, you know, and played it. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just hard to separate and have a good team. Try to think back and all the ones that were there. Are you still in touch with any of the former Sky Blue players, Kevin? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still in touch with the former player stuff. Come to say, get the former players over there. Yeah, so do. Uh, Billy Bell and I's forever talking to him, forever speaking to him, and He's the character, isn't he, Kevin? Uh, for me, my best mate in football is David Smith. You know, yeah. What's the winger? Yeah, the left winger. Great. Me and Smith, he had off, and of course, me being the right winger at the time, him being the left winger, they kind of got to know each other. The same age or similar. I'm slightly older now, a year older than him, and kind of had it off right away now. And with David and his wife Belinda, and you know, I mean, we we see them. We're forever say we're always in touch. Uh, but generally, football is it's the best sport as a, in a fraternity, really, because you don't see people for a long time. Mm-hmm. But then when you meet up with them, it's like you've not lost any time. You're just playing catch up. You know, I see Peter yeah. Billing. Another player, he 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 does some stuff uh, with the TV stuff as well, and see him uh, every so often, and you just you only you only get a chance to talk for about five minutes or so, but you just reminisce within that five minutes, and it's it's, it's not like you've not seen each other for the last ten years, so it's good catching up with the guys that way. And unfortunately, I think the last time I seen a lot of the guys was unfortunately at Big Surrells. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, I could have spent, I mean, a couple of days catching up with everybody, easy, yeah. mm. because that's how friendly we all were at Coventry with each other. You know what I mean? And and are great guys and great guys to catch up with. Yeah, we hear about that from from a lot of the the sort of other players that we spoke to that it's like they've you know never never been a, in a part really. Um, the Sky Blues are obviously having a fantastic season in the current season. Do you still look out for their results? And what do you think of the job that Mark Robbins is doing? I look out for the results. I must admit, uh, but it's good to hear players' names now. I have not got a clue. Yeah, I look no. for the results. I want to see them doing well. Uh, because then I know, like, when Belly phones me up, we'll get something to talk about. Uh, Mark Robbins, I know, is a manager. I, I know Mark, and you want him to see him doing well, but you just want Covenant to do well, and all the problems sure. that they've got with the stadiums and things, it's it's a nightmare. Uh, but I'm, a, I'm an old-school believer that we should never have moved for Highfield Road. Uh, I don't care what anybody says, you know, just stick seats in there. Um and enjoy it and, and, and take that side of it. But we didn't, we wanted to move with the times and look at where they are now, unfortunately. But hopefully 
you know, it's for me, football clubs are run by how the results are on the part on the grass. Yeah. And hopefully they can get results and we're in this pandemic, you know, and hopefully we can get over it and get through it. Hopefully we can get Coventry or players that are at Coventry can do a little bit of history reading and, and get back to the history about the football club and pick them up and, and rise them through the ashes again. It'd be great to see, wouldn't it, Kevin? And I agree with your point about Highfield Road. Um, you know, that ground was easily good enough to be kept or upgraded. Coventry never used to sell out every week um, when they were in the Premier League. So to move to such a big stadium like the Rico didn't seem to make any sense to me. And, and like you said, it just seems to have gone a little bit downhill since then, hasn't it? Which is a shame. Yeah, to me, you know, I mean, okay, you need a little bit of money, you need to be within the football club and things, and yes, people move in the times, and and I mean, I still look at it now, and I think, do we do a class myself as we we done it in Scotland with Hamden? Do you need a national stadium when you've got Celtic Park, Ibrox, all these big stadiums? The same down here in England with Wembley. Do you need a big stadium when you've got Old Trafford, you had Hillsborough when used for semi-finals? You've got all these stadiums now and everybody's going up with it. And they've built them, and don't get me wrong, they're magnificent arenas. But it's keeping up with the Joneses and not everybody can keep up with the Joneses. And Coventry were one of those clubs. And we, they did, we did overspend a little bit, I think, when Ron Atkinson became manager. Gordon Strachan was manager. I think we started overspending a little bit, and but we did reasonable success. But mm. as soon as you had to pull financial strings from the top, yeah, you go and punch above your weight and moving football club to the Rico, that was a big outgoing for me, and it was never going to happen. They'd mm. have been better staying at Highfield Road, doing it up. Uh, and because as I always say teams yes it was an older stadium but teams hated coming to Highfield Road you know and they just hated the results because they knew that Coventry City players were all workers they were all grafters and there were players that, that weren't going to let lie down and, and roll over uh, but when they went to Arica, the Rico clubs love it they go there and they go wow what an arena this is yeah it's, it's a, it's a- it's a soulless stadium, in my opinion, yeah. at times, the Rico. It's just so easy for opposition to play at, Kevin. It is. And the thing is, and it's, you go as a player and you turn up and you go, oh, I like this place, this is brilliant. There's no intimidation there because, yeah, you might have 20,000 people, but it feels like there's 10. It doesn't yeah, it does. And things like that. And that's, that's the downside of it. Mm. I suppose it's it again comes on to that little bit we mentioned earlier, doesn't it, about the premiership and, and football tried to join with business. And I think they saw it as a sort of out of town way to revenues from d- different avenues. And But like you say, Highfield Road was such a special, special place. And it feels like at times you've, you've given up that intimidation, like you mentioned, to sort of move to that sort of out of town new age stadium like a lot of clubs have you know Southampton and have just one even I mean I know Man City are absolutely obviously doing amazingly but they've they've sort of changed haven't they the way that they do their their stadium from from Main Road oh absolutely Etihad changed three times yeah. uh, with what that I do when you're going and doing cool commentary stuff 
From yeah. Liverpool City first got an Etihad to the successful team they are now, the press lounge, for example, you would get a pie. Now you get a three-course meal. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, it <laughs> changes, but that success breeds success. And that's what Manchester City have done. They, they've had success on the pitch, so they're getting a success and they can put it into other areas. Yeah. At Highfield Road, the success was staying in the league. And yeah. that league was the, the money to stay in that league. And when you overspend that money and you try and pull it back and things don't go right, you get relegated. It's so difficult to get yourself back. I've seen it at Blackburn. It's so difficult to get back. And Coventry have found it really difficult and they've gone down, not just one, but they went down three pegs and they're trying to come back up those pegs. And it's very difficult. So hopefully one day I'll be able to get back to wherever Coventry are going to be playing and I'll be able to see them playing at least hopefully within the championship or if not, back in the Premier League again, it'd be great. Yeah, it'd be great to see them play Blackburn in the Premier League, wouldn't it, Kev? That'd be nice. I, yeah. I don't know which part of the fence I would sit on. <laughs> <laughs> With your co-commentary, probably Blackburn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can be very partial. I can turn my head into professionalism and be very impartial on those circumstances. Mm. I think I've done it a few times. I've come down for the, the ex-players, um, and we do. You know, I'd do the co-coms down there for, is it yeah. CNW in it? Um, yeah, yeah. I'd do that, and I mean, I thoroughly enjoy it. You go and do all the, the boxes or the corporate, or the corporate hospitality, and then you go and do commentary in the game, and it's a great time. And then you do a bit with Billy Bell at the end, and and the casino and things. And I mean, it's it was great. You know, I mean, I enjoyed the couple of times I went to the the Rico and done some things, but. I'd like to see Coventry being stable and settled and have their own place. And, you know, it's a, it's a little bit difficult just now when we're playing at Birmingham. It's kind of feel, it doesn't feel like Coventry. It just doesn't have that feel. Just coming back to obviously what you're doing now, Kevin, um, you do a little bit of side commentary for Blackburn at Blackburn and you've got your academy as well. Just uh, briefly describe what's going on there, Kev. <laughs> yeah, I've got... I've got a lot of things going on in my plate at the minute. It's weird. Mm. No, I do obviously BBC uh, Radio Lancashire. I do my co-commentaries following Blackburn Rovers. Yeah. Uh, I also do co-commentaries for BT Sport Europe. Um, and I do, I've been doing kind of chop between Liga, the Bundesliga. So I've been doing little bits like that. Um, yeah. I also, my friend has a, a company called Ipso, which do a bit of scouting. Um, and we teach people how to scout children to professionals and we're around the world with that uh, I've been a lot of the time uh, last year a lot of the time spent in, in China uh, teaching people over in China and mm. I've also got my own uh, soccer school uh, which I teach kids uh, from the age of 4 to 16 plus uh, same kids but some are, I've had a couple of 18 year olds uh, going and, and helping them one-to-ones, mm. uh, helping them to try and get ready maybe to go in for a trial at a football club. And also we have summer camps that I have uh, here in Blackburn as well uh, in the holiday time. So I've got that, but that's all under wraps, as you know, with the pandemic at the moment. None of, of that's all working. And at this moment in time, uh, my daughter, the company that she works for, 
they're making these uh, snoots that oh, yeah. are for the breathing. They have these proteins in them that you wear oh, them wow. like a nose mask. And uh, so I'm now got a real job at this moment in time. And we, my daughter's, my two daughters, their boyfriends are helping me, three of us, because we're all isolated in the one house. I've got a house full here now, unfortunately. And the three of us generally are doing doing these snoots for this company. And uh, they'll be going to, 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 I take it it's companies they get sold to for face masks, uh, snoots for keeping this coronavirus at bay, shall we say. Wow. Yeah, wow. so we're doing that at the minute. So I'm keeping myself busy with that. But other than that, I would be unemployed and scratching my head worrying like everybody else. Of course. Kevin, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. It's been really great to hear your Sky Blues story. And on behalf of, obviously, the commentary fans that watched you over the years, we thank you for coming on and joining us on the show. No, thank you very much, guys. It's been a massive pleasure to come and talk about Coventry again because being up in the northwest, it's mainly Blackburn. So to to go back and, and go back into my brain that little bit further and talk about Coventry has brought up some happy memories for me tonight. So again, thank you guys for for actually asking me. And listeners, don't forget to like, share and comment on our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. All you need to do is use the hashtag SkyBluesExtraPodcast. Thanks for listening to the Sky Blues Extra Podcast. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. We understand that the journey as a supporter isn't always smooth sailing, but rest assured you're not alone. There's a vast network of fellow fans who share your passion and may be experiencing similar challenges. Honesty is key in any relationship. If your friend asks you how you are feeling, tell them honestly. If you're going through a difficult time, let them know. Open them up about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.